Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There are more than 2,000 species currently listed as threatened or endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And while species that gain protection under the act have a great chance to survive, not all do. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Just recently, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that 21 species, birds, fish, mussels, plants, even a bat, were officially declared extinct. We're going to discuss that news and the role of the Endangered Species Act in striving to prevent extinction with Noah Greenwald, the Endangered Species Director at the Center for Biological Diversity, and Lindsay Rosa, the Vice President of Conservation Research and Innovation at Defenders of Wildlife. We'll be back in a minute with Noah and Lindsay. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Treat your finances to a three-month certificate at Interior Federal Credit Union. This is a limited-time opportunity to receive 5.22% annual percentage yield on a three-month certificate. Available beginning October 2nd, 2023 for new money only. Available for members of Interior FCU. Need to join? Apply at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome back to The Traveler, guys. Thank you. Hey, Kurt. So as I mentioned in the in the introduction, um, there are more than 2,000 species listed under the Endangered Species Act as either threatened or endangered. And, uh, you know, ranging from the red wolf with a, a population of, what, barely more than a dozen in the wild to the lesser known American burying beetle. Not, not too many people know about that. And with that great number of species under the act, um, we just had word from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that 21 species have officially been declared extinct. Is that surprising? It's not surprising in the sense that most of these species hadn't been seen for decades And in fact, most of them were probably extinct before the Endangered Species Act was even passed. So it really never had a chance to save them um, because, again, they were already extinct. And it just, you know, because you have to prove a negative, it really takes a long time to make that final call and say something is extinct. With the Fish and Wildlife Service officially declaring extinct some species that haven't been seen in decades, you know, as you mentioned, Noah, Bachman's warbler and the little marina fruit bat, just for two of them. Um, Lindsay, you've said that many of these species were added to the Endangered Species Act when they were too far gone to truly benefit from saving. Can we get ahead of the extinction curve? Yeah, that's right, Kurt. I think, right, the kind of the big thing here is, and and this is a common theme that we see with listed species and the Endangered Species Act is this is, it it was too little too late, right? Um, A lot of these species we hadn't seen for quite a while, and were likely extinct by the time that they actually were listed and uh, were afforded some of the protections under the act, even for those, you know, that, that were still cited after listing, um, you know, 
funding resources weren't really there uh, to help move them closer to recovery. Um, and that is that's something that's not really new. Uh, this is this is kind of a theme. You know, if if you're you're wait till there's few or no individuals left in the population, it really makes it hard to bring them back from the brink, um, which is really the intent of the Endangered Species Act, right? As as Congress intended, that's that's its goal, to prevent extinction and recover species to the point where they no longer need the protections of the act. Um, so really, this was not a failure of the Endangered Species Act at all. This is waiting too long to, to get those species who need the protections most, the protections and not getting them the the resources uh, and oftentimes the the funds to recover them. Well, I'm wondering, are we on kind of a, a, a treadmill or a loop in that a lot of times we're discovering species and it's too late um, and we're constantly discovering new species around the world. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, how many more species will we discover, so to speak, and it's too late to save them under the Endangered Species Act? That's a good question. Given that we we don't even know how many species are are out there, right? Yeah, we'll we'll continue to be discovering them. And I think to the point, um, there are those who we have rediscovered and have made great strides toward recovery. I think one of the great poster children for that is the the black footed ferret, right? Thought to be extinct until um, you know a, a rancher's dog found one, you know, and brought it brought it home, and then you know, that that really gave agencies, services, the communities a chance to act, to really make a difference uh, and ensure that implementation of the act, conservation uh, efforts uh, across different stakeholders, um, and uh, of course, captive breeding efforts could help start to move that species toward recovery and away from extinction. And we're seeing right uh, growing populations, uh, and it's certainly not a full success story just yet. But it's it's one of those where, yeah, we thought it was extinct, we thought it was gone, um, but it's still here with us today. And that is one of the right beauties of the Endangered Species Act is it's still our strongest, most successful tool um, for stemming extinctions and biodiversity loss. Um, and again, its success is certainly, I think, demonstrated by the number of species that are still with us here today because they've been listed under the act. You know, Noah, I'm curious, um, uh, one of the species that everybody thought was extinct and now fish and wildlife is saying, well, we're not exactly sure is the ivory-billed woodpecker. I mean, that seems to be the holy grail um, of species and, and whether it's extinct or not extinct. Were you surprised that they decided not to list it as officially extinct? Um, I mean, I, I think they got a lot of blowback um, from calling it extinct and I mean, I would love to believe that it still survives. That would be great. Um, there's not strong evidence to support that at this point. You know, there's been some photos that have been taken, but they're not, they don't really have the detail that's needed. You know, it, 
it closely resembles pileated woodpeckers, which are a common bird. And so you, you would need high quality photo or video in order to show that it wasn't extinct. And that hasn't happened, that hasn't been produced. And so I really appreciate the people who, they wanted to survive and I, I get that, I get that desire to, to believe that this thing isn't gone, uh, but it sure seems like it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there have been books written about searching for it and not finding it and books written about people who think they've seen it. Um, you know, one thing I will mention about that species is, you know, there is video of the species from the 1940s, which, you know, I encourage your listeners to Google and watch. It's really quite heartbreaking to see that. And then one thing about it, I think really highlights the importance of the Endangered Species Act, because that those birds were videotaped, were videoed in this place called the Singer Tract in Louisiana. And it was owned by the Chicago Mill and Paper Company. There were appeals for them not to log it that were ignored. They essentially made a decision to drive a species to extinction for short-term profits. And um, because there was no Endangered Species Act, there was no way to stop that from happening. Now, uh, nine of the 21 species recently declared extinct were freshwater mussel species. Why are freshwater mollusks the most endangered species in the United States? Well, actually, you know, freshwater extinction, you know, there's studies showing that freshwater species in North America are going extinct roughly 10 times what terrestrial species are going extinct at. And, um, you know, it's just a combination of factors that are leading to that dams, uh, pollution, changes in stormwater runoff. Uh, invasive species. So there's just a host of threats to our freshwater ecosystems, and we just don't treat rivers the way that we should. Um, really discouraging to see the Supreme Court, you know, determine that, you know, the Clean Water Act doesn't protect roughly half the wetlands and, and um, non-perennial streams in the U.S. You know, we, instead of strengthening the Clean Water Act, which is what we need to do, we need to deal with non-point source pollution. They substantially weakened its oversight at exactly the wrong time to be doing that. Yeah, that was a real shocker. Um, Lindsay, is there another big factor that leads to extinction in the United States? Yeah, I, I mean, that that's, that's a lot of, you know, we have the five basically main human-induced drivers of biodiversity loss, right, which has kind of been identified globally. Um, so Noah certainly mentioned uh, a number of them and certainly for freshwater mussels and other aquatics, those are those are some major ones, right? Land and sea use change, pollution, invasive species. Um, the other two, obviously uh, being over-exploitation and climate change. So um, I think that, and that's, you know, those were things that were identified globally, but certainly things that are also playing a role here in the U.S. and certainly with our threatened and endangered species as well. This is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today about extinction and the Endangered Species Act with Noah Greenwald, the Endangered Species Director at Center for Biological Diversity, and Lindsay Rosa, the Vice President of Conservation Research and Innovation at Defenders of Wildlife. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. 
listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. So, you know, in talking about what is driving species to extinction, um, I guess we also have to include politics, right? I mean, you know, the Trump administration rewrote the definition for critical habitat for species and allowed agencies to consider economic impacts when designated critical habitat. I mean, if those definitions had been allowed to stand and were not, you know, reversed by the Biden administration, that could have gone a long way to impacting critical habitat for these species, no? Well, actually, Kurt, the Biden administration didn't fix the problem with critical habitat, unfortunately. It's it's still in place. They didn't touch that at all. So it's it's for for a species, you know, for an action to be considered to adversely modify critical habitat, which is technically prohibited for federal agencies, they would have to affect the whole of a clear of a critical habitat designation. So for a species like the northern spotted owl that has, you know, 9 million acres of critical habitat, there's essentially no clear cut that would be big enough to impact the whole of that critical habitat. And so it essentially makes critical habitat meaningless for for widely distributed but quite imperiled species like the northern spotted owl or the gulf sturgeon or any number of species. What what's the Biden administration's um answer for not changing that? You know, there really hasn't been one. You know, they really haven't said a thing about it. And you know, it's it's been a, a disappointment under the Biden administration. You know, we Fish and Wildlife Service is an agency that's really in badly in need of new leadership and reform. And we just haven't seen that at Fish and Wildlife Service under this administration. We've seen some of that at the EPA, and uh, we just have not seen that with Fish and Wildlife Service. It's been very disappointing. Yeah. So clar- clarify that for me. Did they let both of those definitions stand, those changes in the definition stand, or did they reverse one or one of them? They, they did get rid of the economic considerations okay. in listing, um, you know, which 
wouldn't have stood up in court anyway. I mean, it's clearly, clearly contrary to what the statute says, but they did get rid of that part. You know, I'll throw this out to, to either one of you. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the answer is, but um, the Florida panther, one of the most uh, critically endangered mammals in the country, has never had critical habitat designated by Fish and Wildlife, to the best of my knowledge. Any idea what the holdup is there? Is it necessary? Is it not necessary? I mean, it would be great if they had critical habitat. We actually were part of an effort to petition to have Fish and Wildlife Service designate critical habitat. They declined to do so. Um, roughly, you know, only 40% or so of listed species have critical habitat. And, um, you know, it's, it's again, you know, something that the Fish and Wildlife Service has just ran away from almost, almost from the beginning. Oh, yeah, I would say, you know, that's right. Not all species have critical habitat designated. Um, and even those that do, some of that was, you know, again, pretty delayed. Um, so, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to resources, staff, money, you know, all, all of these things to be able to list a species, to recover a species, to come up with a plan. Um, you know, every single piece of this um, puzzle that helps to keep species from the brink of extinction um, and with us, all of it, you know, it, the, we need money and resources to make it happen. Um, and the Endangered Species Act and the, the services kind of charged um with the with implementation are pretty much starved for funding when it when it comes to that so we uh we did uh an analysis to you know find that essentially the fish and wildlife service is getting less than half of of what it needs in terms of full funding to implement the endangered species act as it was intended so it's hard and it you know it the the impact at the end of the day is you know, not being able to get the species the full protections that they deserve. In in the case of the the panther, is it is it also the checkerboard land makeup? I mean, there's a lot of private property, um, and I'm I'm guessing the Fish and Wildlife Service probably doesn't want to turn private property into critical habitat. Well, I mean, a couple of things there. One is that you know critical habitat doesn't have a big impact. On private property, it doesn't create restrictions for private landowners um, unless they need some sort of federal permit. Um, so in a lot of cases, it wouldn't. It, it doesn't create a preserve. Um, I would note, too, that, you know, Lindsay's absolutely right. There's not enough money being put towards endangered species at all, given how serious the problem is. I mean, Fish and Wildlife Services recovery budget is, you know, roughly $75 million, which in you know, U.S. government terms is really just pennies, um, not even pennies, really. Um, but I would say, you know, that there's, that's not the whole of it. You know, there's been a, a reticence on the part of the agency to do its job. And I guess I would say, you know, that's exemplified with critical habitat by the fact that, you know, for throughout the 80s into the early 90s, they routinely did not designate critical habitat they always concluded that it was not prudent until they were taken to court and the courts found that the exception had swallowed the rule. So they, you know, there's with the Panther, 
you know, I would say, and, and you, you hit the nail on the head at the beginning, Kurt, when you said it's politics, because that's absolutely right. There's a lot of hesitancy on the part of the agency to to create controversy. And so they, they want to avoid controversy and that that sometimes subsumes their mission. But I, I thought the Biden administration was all about protecting biodiversity. I mean, 30 by 30, we're going to protect 30% of America's lands and waters for nature by, by 2030. Um, didn't Fish and Wildlife get the memo? <laughs> well, it's a laudable goal. It's just uh, not much specifics there and how we're going to get there. And here we are three years into the administration. Against this loss of species, um, we're also discovering new species. That's Great Smoky Mountains National Park alone. Nearly 1,100 previously unknown species have been discovered over the past 25 years since Discover Life in America um, began inventorying species at Great Smoky Mountains National Park. You know, it's just been an incredible endeavor that they've done. And, you know, the species that they're finding, the the, the known species that weren't thought to exist in the, the park that they're finding there is, I think, over 10,000 species. Do we need to expand such efforts um, to search for new species and, and to come up with a, a good baseline for what we know is out there, whether it's new or whether it's a, a species we know about but didn't think it was over there? Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't say to no to that. Um, uh, being a scientist and a um, a mapper, you know, the the more data that we have, the better. I'll always um, encourage efforts like that, especially citizen science efforts as well, to help us understand what species are out there and where. It really can help at the end of the day for very strategic targeted efforts for conservation. Um, and yeah. I, yeah, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, one of the problems is we don't even know what we're losing. You know, the the UN and scientists from around the world have warned that we're at risk of losing uh, more than a million species in the coming decades. And most of those species are probably species that have never even been described. I mean, just the fact that we're still describing species in the U.S., you know, a highly settled country, you know, with that's put a fair amount of money into research and, you know, really highlights that, that we're just beginning to understand our world and to understand its diversity. Among the species that um, recently were discussed declared extinct, I believe, were eight species of Hawaiian honeycreepers, um, small birds that, that live in the forests out there in Haleakala National Park and uh, I'm sure in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, some of them. And yet while we've lost those species, I mean, the, the Biden administration is trying its hardest to to reverse some of those trends. No, with um, the recent um, efforts to buy Interior and by the, the state of Hawaii to basically... Um, deconstruct, if you will, um, mosquitoes that carry avian malaria up into the forest and, and which the birds are really um, exposed to and um, usually end up dying when they get infected with it. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it's not, again, too little too late. Um, you know, one of the species, Akikiki, is down to five individuals in the wild. You know, it's we're literally watching these birds 
go extinct right before our eyes. Um, you know, it, it, you know, the mosquitoes and the diseases were introduced a long time ago. And, you know, up, up through the seventies, there was the belief that, you know, Haleakala and Hawaii volcanoes, as well as the Alakai Swamp on Kauai, that those places were, would provide a long-term refuge because they were too high and cold for mosquitoes. And uh, with climate change, that's turning out not to be true. And so particularly on Kauai, which is the, is the lowest of those three that I just mentioned, you know, the, it happened, it's happened really rapidly. The mosquitoes have moved uphill so that they're covering the whole island. And that's why the Akikiki and the Akeake um, also are, are just in steep decline and, and, and going extinct despite, you know, massive efforts to try and save them. So I really, I really hope the effort to address mosquitoes with this with this novel use of a of something called Wolbachia. It's a bacteria that's found in all mosquitoes, and um, they introduce mosquitoes with a different form of Wolbachia that makes their their offspring infertile. Um, yeah, we've actually there's been some people who you know they just see it as us messing with nature. They don't understand that mosquitoes aren't native there. They don't understand that Wolbachia and the mosquitoes are both both already there. I've tried to challenge it in court, and we've been interveners to to defend the state's effort to do that. Any idea how long it might be before we see any signals that this effort is is moving in the right direction? That it is successful. I haven't heard that, but they, you know, that because they just started doing it. You know, yeah. they just started doing it in Maui within the last few months and then right. they now are starting to do it in Kauai too. Yeah. I'm just wondering, I mean, um, trying to keep track of mosquitoes is not an easy, easy task. And as you mentioned with climate change, they're, they're going higher and higher. Um, and of course the recent fires in Maui, um, I believe there were some, uh, wildlife sanctuaries where, um, people were, were trying to, uh, protect some honey creepers. If I, remember my newscast. Yeah, they had some captive Akikiki. They're trying, they've been bringing birds out of the wild to try and captive breed them. And they had some of the birds on Maui in an aviary. And apparently people who from the aviary ended up being out um, fighting fire at the aviary. And then they were able to move the birds. Fortunately, the, the birds weren't lost. Yeah, I was wondering the outcome of that. This is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking Extinction and the Endangered Species Act with Lindsay Rosa, Vice President of Conservation Research and Innovation at Defenders of Wildlife, and Noah Greenwald, the Endangered Species Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. 
Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at vrpfoundation.org. So I'm wondering in, you know, looking at this recent list of species that have gone extinct, um, there's no charismatic megafauna, which I, I guess that might be a, a good thing, or it might also be um, because we've already did a pretty bad job with them. Um, preserving charismatic megafauna. Um, of course, there's always the ongoing debates about uh, whether the, the gray wolf or the grizzly bear should be delisted. And um, we've got the on-again, off-again efforts to um, restore grizzly bears in the North Cascades ecosystem. How would you guys describe the, the plight of the larger mammals that um, people can make a, a readier connection with uh, as opposed to some of the freshwater mussel species or even the warblers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've talked a little bit already about, um, you know, politics. Uh, that certainly <laughs> has played a role here. And a lot of those species, um, even those that are maybe not the fuzzies with the sharp teeth, but um, some of those that are still certainly um, very visible, um, like the kind of the lesser prairie chicken uh, and in some of those, you know, similar parts of the world where there's this kind of struggle between or confused struggle, confusion between, uh, you know, conservation and uh, livelihoods. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of interesting um, new ways to kind of bring attacks to um, endangered species and the protections that are afforded by the act um, in Congress. Uh, I'm sure that's, that's, you know, something that, um, that Noah can speak to as well as, you know, as part of this effort for the, the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, we've noticed quite a rise in um, some of those political attacks. Um, and a lot of them are, you know, surrounding these, these megafauna, like you say, um, grizzly bear is certainly on that list. Gray wolf is on that list. And um, the, uh, unfortunately, the, the kind of um, attacks continue. I think we're near 50, 50 attacks on the, on the Endangered Species Act now during its its 50th anniversary. So yeah, but you know, we can continue to, you know, push that the that these species too are um, you know, similarly in in need of these protections in many cases. Well, I'm curious, Lindsay, you mentioned, you know, the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act and and defenders recently conducted a poll that showed the vast majority of Americans, regardless of political party, um, support the Endangered Species Act. And yet, as you mentioned, you know, Congress is on track to be one one of the worst on record for its treatment of the ESA. There's a disconnect here someplace, right? Absolutely, yes. A very strong disconnect, I think, between um, those who have uh, who who members of Congress and some of their constituents. So, you know, I think uh, um, Americans 
say it well, you know, they support the Endangered Species Act. They understand that biodiversity is important to their everyday lives, uh, right? So whether it's the gray wolf or the grizzly bear or the lesser prairie chicken or those freshwater mussels, right? All of those species contribute. Um, and, you know, our poll numbers show that that people get that and they understand. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, the the folks who are, um, you know, that are representing those those people right now are are taking action that that doesn't really fit um, that sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen a you know a really organized and well funded anti regulatory campaign in our country with you know just millions of dollars behind it, um, you know, funded by the likes of Charles Koch um, that have put members put people in Congress, put a lot of money behind people getting into Congress that have an anti-regulatory agenda. And um, so, you know, they've done a lot to undermine, you know, our bedrock environmental laws. And um, they've been able to pack the Supreme Court at this point. And so, you know, really this minority viewpoint uh, with so much money behind it has been able to get quite a bit further than you would think it should, you know, and a lot of that, I don't know, I mean, this is all politics and, you know, it's unfortunate to have to talk about it, but, you know, a lot of that has been, you know, misleading to people who they get votes from, you know, they, you know, trumpet it as they're, they're going to take your guns away, you know, and, and, uh, but really it's a, it's a corporate driven polluter driven campaign to undo regulations and protections for wildlife and clean water and clean air and climate. Yeah, talking about the Endangered Species Act, um, there's been an effort, I think it's still ongoing, still in the courts, to seek endangered species protection for bison in Yellowstone National Park. I wonder if you're familiar with that and any thoughts on it. Well, I've always been confused as to why bison aren't listed overall. You know, they're they're in something like 1% of their range, you know, even less than that of their abundance. Um, and so I've always thought that, you know, trying, trying to list them in Yellowstone is, you know, I, I get the sentiment. It's terrible that they get killed when they move out of the park, but it is the spot where they're where it's their last stronghold, you know, it's the spot where they're doing the best. So it's kind of the hard, a hard way to make the case. It, it's always struck me that they should be listed everywhere. Um, Fish and Wildlife Service did do a status review of them. I don't know, maybe it was 10 years ago. And uh, one thing that was good that they did in there was that they separated out commercial herds from conservation herds. Um, because most of the bison that we have in the country are actually beefalo. Um, there's something like two or 300,000 beefalo. They're hybrids with cattle. And um, in terms of, you know, actual bison um, that represent the species, it's really just, you know, like a few dozen herds with, you know, maybe 20,000 animals at best. There's been some great progress by tribes in recent years. But other than that, you know, this is a highly diminished animal. I actually had coffee with Gary Frazier, runs ecological services at Fish and Wildlife Service. 
And I asked him, you know, because it, it, it baffles me, you know, here's it's it's literally like mammal of America, you know, it's like it's a symbol of our country. And so why Fish and Wildlife Service wouldn't want to be involved in its recovery and list it as threatened, which it certainly is, has always baffled me. And his response was basically just, do you really think it's at risk? And it was like, well, yeah, you know, and also, you know, it's it's the idea is to conserve the ecosystems upon which species depend. And if there's an ecosystem that needs conserving, it's the it's the prairies of the Great Plains. Yeah, I wonder though, um, I, I think it's been demonstrated that there are no bison left that are pure bison genetically. I believe they've they've found that all bison to a varying degree have cattle genes in them. So have we already lost that battle? I don't think so. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, but there definitely are populations, again, these conservation herds and the bison in Yellowstone that really represent the species. You know, they, they have a very small percent of, of cattle genes. You know, it's it's a much different thing when you're talking about commercial bison and, you know, that have substantial integration with, with cattle. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, to yeah, to Noah's point, I, I think it is, you know, a, a little bit interesting that, right, it is the um, the icon of the Department of Interior. Um, and I know that there are is a lot of great work being done by the tribes, um, some of the tribes out there to kind of transfer herds to um kind of get at some of these genetic issues that you're talking about. But yes, yeah, certainly, I mean, an ecologically important and culturally important species that um, we need to to make sure stays around. Yeah, I guess I guess the thing with bison is is people, you know, see that there's 500,000 bison in North America. So how can that possibly be endangered? Um, but, you know, to your point, Noah, bison once roamed from Nevada to Virginia, from Canada down to the Rio Grande. Um, and so when you look at it that way, yeah, there's a big void out there across the landscape. Um, let me ask you as we wrap up, what species are you most concerned about today? That's a tough one. Um, I don't know that I can pick one. Uh, I mean, right. This is, this is part of the problem is they're all so interconnected and we talk about species and of course the loss of 21 here, but it's not just the species, right. That we're losing. It's the evolutionary history. It's the, the niches that they serve, the functions, the interactions between them and other species. And those things aren't just being lost when we, you know, a species goes extinct, right? That's the whole concern with biodiversity loss. Extinction is just one part of that. It's a very permanent part of that. Um, but, you know, we're losing these things all the time as populations are declining, as, um, you know, we're down to five individuals of a species in Hawaii. You know, this is, it's, it's, struggling and this you know i mean this this is the wake up call right um for for i i mean we we talked about the what eight 
freshwater mussels and um, some fishes that were lost. You know, there's the only thing more canary in the coal mine is a canary in the coal mine, right? This is, um, we're talking about degradation of rivers and aquatics in some of the most biodiverse parts of our, our of the contigu contiguous U.S., right? The Southeast um, rivers. So, yeah, I don't think I can pick just one. I think that this, this is something that that resonates because you know that that's biodiversity you lose one species and you 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 know it's you start to see the the sweater unravel as you as you pull the threads so i don't yeah there's not just one that i'm i'm concerned about i you know stay awake at night thinking thinking more about what that means when you know what you know what happens when just one is lost it's more than that well, you know, I definitely would point to Akikiki. And um, as part of that, I would point to just, you know, our what that says there is that our, our problems are starting to come together, essentially, the problems we cause. You know, we, we're, we've spread species all over the planet. We've destroyed and fragmented habitats. Um, we're changing the climate. And those things, those impacts are starting to interact in ways that are surprising and unpredictable. And, you know, mosquitoes moving uphill is one example of that. You know, the fire that burned Lahaina was driven by invasive grasses, you know, and um, so, you know, climate change, invasive species, habitat destruction, if we do not change our course in a really substantial way now, you know, it's it's really going to run away from us, um, and so it's 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 a it's scary and and um, it's hard to watch the world right now. You know, it's we see wars. You know, when it's we need to get together and work on these problems. You know, and and uh, work together because they're difficult issues. Yeah, yeah. Any insights on the California California condor? I mean. It's been hit hard, somewhat hard this year by avian malaria, and um, there was just a, a story out of Redwood National and State Parks in California about um, um, a condor ingesting lead shot from uh, a carcass and um, wildlife biologists trying to save it. I mean, there's not a lot of California condors out there either. Yeah, for sure. It's a really concerning species that needs constant management and, you know, always... Actually, it sort of brings us back to what I was talking about earlier about this um, well-funded campaign, um, anti-regulatory campaign, because if there's one thing that I just really scratched my head over is why we're still using lead ammunition. You know, it's been known to be toxic since Roman times, essentially, and it has serious human health risks associated with it, um, you know, with hunting with it. And... Um, you know, there's great alternatives. And so it's just mind boggling that this issue is not solved. And, you know, Congress has actually taken action in the last 20 years to prevent the EPA from regulating lead ammunition. And uh, there's just, it's just nonsensical. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the condor is a, a perfect example, too. I mean, you talk about malaria, you talk about lead. Um, a lot of the things that we 
you know, hear about or are being pushed, certainly at the kind of national scale, is climate change, habitat loss. And these are, right, these are big issues. These are impacting a great number of species listed or or unlisted under the act. But, you know, looking into the data as, as we've done and thinking about all these other threats, right? If you just continue to kind of think about and focus on addressing those two, there's, you know, over three quarters of our listed species would still have threats that go unaddressed because, you know, uh, you know, all of these other ones that you talk about. Um, so we always talk about, right, the habitat loss and the climate change, and it's very important. And there's all these synergies among these threats that we also need to start to understand better and tease apart um, through our kind of kind of research and collaborative scientific knowledge. Uh, but there's also these other ones. So we really kind of need this kind of comprehensive understanding and these efforts to, to really stem what's what's going on with biodiversity loss here in the U.S. and globally. Yeah, yeah. And we don't have time to get into it, but, you know, talking about invasive species, you just look at Everglades National Park and the, the Burmese python, and there's some other reptilian species that are creeping into there, no pun intended, that are um, having a great impact on the native species there in uh, Everglades. Um, be an interesting story um, somebody should do about... Um, looking at national parks and endangered and threatened species and which way they're going. That was Lindsay Rosa from the Defenders of Wildlife and Noah Greenwald for Center for Biological Diversity. Folks, thanks so much for joining me today and talking about uh, this critical issue when we're looking out across uh, nature in the United States and even broader across the world and uh, the state of nature and what we're losing and what we're trying to save. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about threatened and endangered species in the Endangered Species Act, you can visit the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Center for Biological Diversity, and Defenders of Wildlife websites. On its website, the Interior Department celebrates the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act with a number of success stories. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.